Heart takes, not hot takes. This is Everyone is Wrong, a counterintuitive pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Seth Sommerfeld. Thanks for listening. My guest today may or may not be the Cuisart Hadarak, is a star of the Black Constellation, and has produced more good Seattle albums than you have all done combined. <laughs> With the 2021 cinematic version of Dune being nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, my guest today has ventured to Arrakis to defend the noble honor of David Lynch's less heralded 1984 film version of Frank Herbert's classic sci-fi novel, which did not fare well at the box office and was not particularly well received, but has somewhat of a cult following. Everyone is wrong, but Eric Blood isn't. Thanks for coming on, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. How's life going for you right now, Eric? Uh, life is good. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm kind of. I find that I'm suited to a pandemic. Like I, I'm a. I'm a homebody, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd rather be with my dog than with the public. So yeah. I think that's a fair assessment of the public, and I'm glad that we finally, I finally cornered you to pandemically come on the pod. <laughs> yes. So let's get into the background of 1984's Dune. Dune is a 1984 science fiction film directed by David Lynch. It is based on Frank Herbert's landmark sci-fi novel of the same name, with Lynch handling the screenplay adaptation of this version. The film stars Kyle MacLachlan in his film debut as Paul Atreides, the son of the noble ruler Duke Leto, played by Jürgen Prochnow. He is guided by his mother, Lady Jessica, played by Francesca Annis, who is a member of the space witch group, the Bene Gesserits. Serving in House Atreides are Patrick Stewart's Gurney Halleck, and Richard Jordan's Duncan Idaho, among others. Contrasting House Atreides is the rival House Harkonnen, including Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, played by Kenneth McMillan, and his nephew Fade Rotha, played by Sting. The music for this film was done by the rock band Toto, and Brian Eno wrote the film's prophecy theme, which we will get to later. The story of Dune follows House Atreides, who rule over their water-heavy homeworld of Caladan. Sensing they might be a threat, the Galactic Emperor forces them to take control over the desert planet Arrakis, where the drug Spice is harvested, and Spice is essential for space travel, so it's the most valuable thing in the universe. In sending House Atreides to Arrakis, it bumps out House Harkonnen, and the Emperor knows that they will come and seek revenge, and basically it will eliminate House Atreides by forcing them to take over this seemingly rich job. As the Duke's son, Paul is heir to House Atreides, but he is also unique as the son of a Bene Gesserit. The space which order the Bene Gesserits can control people using a special voice and is kind of a priestly advisor role to a lot of people. They forbid bearing sons, though it is prophesized that one of them will bear a son who will become a messiah-like figure known as the Kwisart Hadara. And the desert people of Arrakis, the Fremen, are very familiar with this lore of the Kwisart Hadarak and this messiah figure. And when the Atreides come to the planet, they believe that Paul is the actual 
person who will bear out this legend and things happen that convince them that this might be the case. The plan that the emperor lays out works and House Atreides fall at the hands of the Baron Harkonnen and Duke Leto perishes, but Paul and his mother are able to escape, eventually joining up with the native Fremen people and their blue eyes. Paul must seek revenge against House Harkonnen, find love among the Fremen with Sean Young's chanty, and possibly fulfill the prophecy. That is the no way complicated <laughs> narrative of Dune tried to be condensed. It's impossible. It's a story that's like 90% lore, and it's why it's so hard to film. Anyway, speaking of that, attempts to bring Herbert's 1965 novel to the big screen started as early as 1971, but it's been a notoriously difficult property to properly adapt to cinema, with many failed attempts starting up, including ones helmed by Alejandro Jodorowsky and Ridley Scott. Following the success of his first two films, the cult horror classic Eraserhead in 1977 and the mainstream success of The Elephant Man in 1980, David Lynch was tapped to finally bring Dune to the big screen. At the time, Dune had the highest budget of any film in history at $40 million, which is roughly $108 million in 2022 terms, which isn't that much, but at the time it was this was the biggest movie ever conceived. But the film was not a box office success, only making $30.9 million. Furthermore, Lynch basically disavowed the film, saying that the producers had restricted his vision and denied him final cut. There's even certain versions of the film that were cut for TV, which Lynch had his name removed from the cut. And he's also does not like talking about Dune in any interviews and has refused requests to do a modern director's cut of Dune. Despite that, the film became a sort of deep cult classic for certain sci-fi nerds, and the lone bright spot of its release at the time was probably that it earned a Oscar nomination for Best Sound. Now, before we get into the rest of the critical reception, what was your relationship to this movie, Eric? Um, so this movie came out around my birthday in 1984, not when I was born, but my birthday, I think I was, what, eight? I, I don't know. As an eight-year-old, I think I watched a lot of Siskel and Ebert or something because I was like, I knew when it came out that it was supposed to be not good. <laughs> and even though it was this like giant science fantasy, you know, epic, I was, I was totally uninterested in it. And I didn't actually get a look at it until sometime later in the 80s when it came on cable. And I remember just thinking it was impenetrable. Like, I, I didn't get it at all. I was <laughs> like, why why do they keep whispering spice? And like, what's the, what, what the fuck? Like, all these words make no sense. Yeah. These names are ludicrous, except for Jessica and Paul, <laughs> right. which I was like, how like you really you call on the motherfucker to quit Satirac and you can't come up with a better name than Jessica. Um, but whatever, that's that's Frank Herbert. Um, right. So it wasn't until I think I was like probably 20 when I realized <laughs> that it was directed by David Lynch. Mm hmm. And by that time, I was a huge David Lynch fan. Like, like I after seeing Wild at Heart 
I was became a huge fan and went back and watched Blue Velvet, which scared the living shit out of me. And then like everything else he had done, I was a big fan. You know, I think he's a master filmmaker. And when I realized, oh shit, he directed Dune, I really have to revisit that and see <laughs> see, see if, if there's like, anything there. Well, I I figured maybe his career had, is like a decoder ring for this right. movie that that had been around forever. But yeah, so watching it again with a little more kind of film knowledge and and a little more knowledge of of the director, I definitely understood it more and found it a lot more fascinating mm-hmm. um, and was able to take in the the picture of it more, kind of ignoring a lot of the things like, you know, I think when I was a kid, I was looking for plot and trying to find a story that was easy to follow. Right. And that's just not there. Yeah. It doesn't follow the like, you know, if you're a kid and you're seeing this, you're thinking like sci-fi is Star Wars and you're like, I know Star Wars. It follows the easy like hero's journey plot. And totally. This is. And even Star even Star Wars, I feel like. I feel like Star Wars was just something that was on all the time, <laughs> wherever mm. you were in the 80s. Even that plot's not, I mean, it's a little more simple, but it's not necessarily, like, they still got crazy-ass names, and, and <laughs> right. like, there's weird shit happening everywhere. <laughs> they still call one guy Ben. Uh, <laughs> so even that's not exactly, like, cut and dry to right. me. And I, I, a kid only follows it because the special effects are great and the creatures are great. This Dune, to me, is like, oh, well, this is not for kids the way that Star Wars was for kids. Mm -hmm. Dune was definitely created more on the fantasy tip. I I will argue that Star Wars is fantasy more so than science fiction. I also argue that Dune is fantasy more than science fiction anytime you're dealing with a messiah and uh, (laughs) creatures and witches you're in fantasy territory for me. <laughs> yep. I, I think that's, I think that's a very fair, yeah, fair yeah. assessment. And had you read Dune or did you read Dune at any point? I tried to read Dune after falling back in love with the movie or falling in love with the movie initially. And I couldn't do it. Like I, I just couldn't make it happen. My boyfriend has read Dune and I think it took him like three years. <laughs> it's a lot. Dune is one of the ones I would recommend if you want to get into Dune. The audiobook is a good way to go. Who's reading it? It's I don't recall, but it's acted out with multiple voice. It's not just like okay. one person reading straight throughout. So it does get more compelling and you like it's some of the blur because when you're reading the book, there's so many of these names and lore things that you don't know. And if you're reading them, it's easy to get tripped up on them. But when you just mm-hmm. kind of have it being read to you and flow over, you can kind of like make those connections as you go along. You're like, I don't yeah. know what that was, but hopefully they'll talk about it more. And they do. Yeah, that's I always just I, I trust a, a storyteller. Always. It's like, oh, they'll, they'll let me know what, what that means at some point. <laughs> yeah. And personally, my experience with this movie is I listened to the audiobook during quarantine and then because I knew the newer version was coming out and I was like, I should be ready for that. That's going to be a big movie. And then I was like, I should watch the David Lynch version because it's David Lynch. And I know it's not supposed to be great, but at least I know. And 
that, that colored my opinions, but we'll kind of get into that. But before we get into that, we'll quickly hop on to what critics thought at the time. In addition to the box office being unkind to 1984's Dune, critics weren't kind to this film either. The film sits at 44% on Rotten Tomatoes, only 29% among top critics, with a fresh but low audience score of 65%. By comparison, 2021's Dune sits at 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, 78% among top critics, with an honestly surprising audience score of 90%. Considering how like slow and like how much that movie asks of you, I'm kind of shocked that it's 90%. I loved it, but like it's a lot. Uh, here's what critics at the time had to say about the OG Dune. The Washington Post's Paul Adesanya started his review, quote, how maddening Dune is. As you would expect from visionary director David Lynch, it is a movie of often staggering visual power, the most ambitious science fiction film since 2001. It's also stupefyingly dull and disorderly. (laughs) He also went on to say, but Lynch, who also wrote the screenplay, has cluttered his story with taxonomic gibberish and a bench full of unnecessary characters. In the book, it's texture. In the movie, it's lard. Though, weirdly, the weirdest part about this review, which is one of the better negative reviews I found of it, is that he really praised the visual effects. Mm -hmm. He said that the shields that transform (laughs) the bearer into like cartwheeling geometric crystals make Star Wars look tacky. Which <laughs> is not an opinion that I think holds up at all, but uh, yeah. So this was this this was written in 1984, correct? Yes, this was written in 1984. Okay. And for Good. context, Return of the Jedi, the third Star Wars film, came out in 1983. So this is after all the Star Wars original trilogy movies had come out. Michael Bloman of the Boston Globe, somewhat fittingly, I think, wrote. Unless you have the book committed to memory, you'll find it practically impossible to follow the story. Janet Meslin of the New York Times was more blunt in saying, several of the characters in Dune are psychic, which puts them at a unique position of being able to understand what goes on in the movie. (laughs) Well put. (laughs) Yeah. We'll get into it, but I think, yeah, if I hadn't, one of my criticisms is I don't know how you understand this movie if you haven't read the book. It's anyway. Now, the sad part for the podcast is that normally the patron saint of everyone is wrong. Roger Ebert gave this a one star review. Pretty much he always Mm -hmm. likes the movies that people come on to defend. He was not a fan of Dune writing, quote, It took Dune about nine minutes to completely strip me of my anticipation. This movie is a real mess, an incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless excursion into the murkier realms of one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. Even the color is no good. Everything is seen through a sort of dusty yellow filter as if the film was left out in the sun too long. Only a few of the critics gave Dune any credit, and even then it was mostly like mixed reviews, like three out of five stars. And Mm. the best of the bunch I could find was from Kirk Ellis of The Hollywood Reporter, who wrote, There's a daringly abstract quality to much of Lynch's imagery and his preoccupation with textures. 
here abetted by some of the best production values producer Rafaela de los Santos could buy, sets the proceedings into almost tactile relief. You don't just watch the film, you can practically feel it. Which I think is a valid point, and we will get into I agree with that 100%. So, Eric, why is everyone wrong about David Lynch's Dune? <laughs> well, okay, I don't want to... I'm... <laughs> I know you, you, you coming coming on this podcast is a bit of a like I'm I'm kind of lying to everybody. I don't think anyone's wrong. I think that <laughs> I you, you appreciate you you at least appreciate this movie, which is more than a lot of people. I absolutely appreciate this right. film. I think it's I think it's spectacular. I very much enjoy watching it. It does what I want movies to do. It looks good. It sounds good. It moves around. <laughs> it shows me things that I've never seen before. It also confounds me, um, which I, I want. Like, yeah. I really, I, I appreciate that. And I think most of most of us nerds do. Mm-hmm. So let's get into some of your uh, defense points for this. Do you want to just hop into your first one? Sure. Uh, as we, I think we... <laughs> okay, so my main... Th- this is really a big deal to me. Every single person on screen in this movie is 100% committed, totally giving their all. David Lynch is actually getting very interesting, sometimes nuanced, sometimes over the top, Mm -hmm. intentionally over the top performances from everybody. No one is phoning anything in. No one's acting like they're in a shitty B movie. Right. It's, it's, Kind of like for me, that gives the movie some weight. Yeah, I, I I agree. I I feel like there's sort of a campiness to this movie, but the actors are sort of unaware of the campiness of it. Like it's not yes. because they're hamming it up. It's they they're the thing that kind of it reminded me a little bit watching it for the second time now. There's almost like a masterpiece theater kind of like professionalism to it, of where yes. it's just like we're delivering this like very seriously and sincerely and it's got a little bit of pomp to it, which is, you know, like those masterpiece theater things. It's like all, you're not like, this is a amazing drama. Most of the time you're just like, Oh, this is that kind of feel to it. Totally. It gives me, it gives me, you know, it it definitely gives me uh, like 1940s and 50s science fiction film camp um, in its, presentation Mm -hmm. but not in its performances and definitely not in its production design but there is there's something very uh old old school epic about it right um even like even down to the uh the intro monologue by virginia madsen and the end credits which is a fucking moving (laughs) moving image of each actor (laughs) yeah over over crashing waves Totally, like, come on. That is so, like, that's so Douglas Sirk or, like, Lawrence of Arabia kind of shit. Like, it's so huge. Right. It it doesn't, it takes itself like it is a big, important movie throughout. And, you know, like the voiceover you mentioned at the start, that actually is something that pulls from the book is, like, a bunch of the book is narrated from the perspective of this queen or mm-hmm. who's the princess in this movie. And that's not in like the newer movie. And for the most part, I think the voiceover works like you almost have to have 
some semblance of voiceover in this movie with how it's laid out because there's just you're trying to get all of Dune into a two hour bunch. And like some of it gets a little bit stilted, but it's just like when that's probably the like when you're picking nits at like the voiceover acting, maybe it's like like Kyle McLaughlin. This is his first role, like big screen role. And he's Mm -hmm. incredibly solid and believable in this throughout. There's a reason there's a reason that David Lynch hired that motherfucker every time he could for the next 10 years. Like he really they had a thing. They had a chemistry together that. Like, because I like Kyle McLaughlin, but I like him because of Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and Dune. Like, I like him and, you know, whatever. Like, I'm glad that he was in Sex and the City. I'm glad that he was in uh, Showgirls. Mm -hmm. But, like, I'm never talking about, like, oh, man, his performance is Trey McDougal. Like, what a fucking tour de force. No. But I do talk about Dale Cooper. Mm -hmm. And I do talk about, uh, I can't remember what the fuck his name is in Blue Velvet. But, like, yeah, I... I love this. He's he's got this stable of actors that seem to come from this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that's, a lot that's of one thing where, you know, Lynch is not fond of this movie, but clearly he at least had a good enough time making it in like the moment. And that even if he does not want to like associate himself with it, it did lay out a bunch of the rest of like you were talking about some of that like Dakota ring things for the rest totally. of his career well shit i mean like look at his career like so we've got the art school shorts we've got the like we've got erased her head which is an art school project right you know with a with a bit of a budget and then there's elephant man which still like i think that's a great movie i think it's really beautifully made i i it's not my favorite and it's also like there are certain elements that you can you feel David Lynch in it, but for the most part, it feels like a it feels like a a biopic, a sad, weepy biopic. Right. And then he did this. Then he did fucking Dune, which which is basically like let's give a little kid a bunch of money and tell him not to buy candy. And yeah. like, of course, he's just like, no, but candy, like, put candy everywhere. I want candy on every wall. I want right. Candy everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And then I'm gonna hire a bunch of people that don't eat candy. Yeah, and then it's... Like a bunch of serious motherfuckers. And that he's also, you know, undertaking the screenplay of it, which, you know, could you could quibble with that, but just the fact of undertaking, trying to adapt this thing that is been, like, unadaptable is kind of crazy. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of... One thing that I've heard from people that I like is Elephant Man, if you look at it in the David Lynch catalog, is almost just like... David Lynch proving that he can make like a normal movie so that it's just like you can't like dismiss me as like the weirdo director because I have like I've proven that I can and now I get to go do my own things. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel like the elephant man was him proving something to the French, like just the (laughs) French in general. He was like, oh, I can I can actually I know how to manipulate your emotions. I know how to do that. Like I can watch and then elephant man. Yeah. And then, of course, like the success of Elephant Man <laughs> leads these people to say, like, hey, you want to do? And so what I don't know, something I don't know is whether Lynch was a fan of the book. Uh, I, no, do you know I, this? I, I looked it up. So it, he hadn't. It was the producer approached him because he had not read the book when he was first approached to, like, make Dune. Okay. So then he immersed himself in it. 
So that is that is a different like take from like like when Jordorowski was trying to make it and he was just like a dune obsessive trying to get mm-hmm. this project out. But I think he I do like the movie definitely has an appreciation for the book. So I don't think it was like he slapped out. He believed in the book. It's just like, again, a very hard thing to translate. And even, you know, the newer one, it's just like, yeah, we're going to split into two movies because there's no I'm way. Gonna, let me let me just let me just say this now. Like the uh, I love the new movie. I love the new Dune. I thought it was really great. Uh, super fun. I have I have criticisms about it mm-hmm. that are that are totally benign. Like they, we, they we, have. Yeah, we can dive. I th- I feel like we can dive a little deeper to the new one and like when we get to the end. But yeah, go ahead. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Because uh, I do have stuff to say about it. But like considering the screenplay for. 1984 Dune was written by David Lynch after, you know, I'm going to guess like two, maybe three years with the book. Yeah. Maybe if that, like thinking of how movies get made. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, I, I have to say like the screenplay for the new Dune and the screenplay for this Dune, not terribly different. I mean, they're, they're not, I watching the new one. I kept thinking like this. Yeah, I'm following this completely because I've watched Dune <laughs> like yeah. 50 times. Yeah, I think we we could dive into it. I think I think it tries to it takes its time a little bit more, but it's because it almost has the luxury of taking its time a little bit more. Exactly. Exactly. And that was the thing. Like when I first heard that they were making a new one after you know being familiar with the book, and then after reading it, I'm like. I didn't realize they were splitting it into two. And I'm like, can't they just make like it into a series? And there has been a series adaptation of Dune, but it's just like such a dense book that it's just like, if this isn't at least like almost seven hours, then it's just going to be like hard to tell this story super effectively, which is one of the problems this movie runs into. Um, Before we jump off into the next point, (laughs) I will also say when we're talking about the commitment, the only like acting thing I think that like, kind of throws me a little bit because most of the acting's super solid is that Aeneas's Lady Jessica, when there's like really emotional moments is a bit rough for me in terms mm. of just the, cause Paul's supposed to be sort of stoic in those moments, but I don't know. That was the only <laughs> moment where her like hysterics didn't exactly like mesh for me, but that's more a personal taste than anything. Yeah, I think I think the way that I look at it is that these are not um, earthlings. These, That's are, fair. these are like That's fair. like like the 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 uh, the Atreides clan or whatever. Like they're real different. Like they really they really operate on a different a different wavelength than earthlings. And for sure, we're we're dealing with people literally ten thousand years into the future uh, who are from different planets and are are you know, bordering on different species a lot of times. So these little, these little things. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's fine in sci-fi and fantasy. I think it's nitpicky on my part to like kind of bring that up, but it's just the one spot where, and it's only like, she has like two emotional moments and they last like 10 seconds. And I'm like, "Eh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but then, but then on the flip side, we get, uh, what's her, I, I, I don't know if this is how you pronounce her name, but Shion Phillips. Oh yeah. S S I A N Phillips, damn Irish names. Uh, yeah, it's okay. she's she's the 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 Bene Gesserit like 
priest like priest like head yeah, of the, Betty Jesuit priestess. The one that I call the bad bitch, like because yeah. she's the one that's just like I'm gonna I I everything I say is the shit and every and even if I'm bad, like you love me. <laughs> uh, she's so dope and everything she's, she's intimidating in is so great. all the time. Yeah, she looks amazing. I thought Charlotte Rampling was a great analog in the new one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like what a what a what a get. Yeah, no, she she when she shows up, it's totally like a clear vibe in terms yes. of like you know like you are understand almost just from her physical appearance, you get it, and then her face and just you understand it brings into focus that whole like order. You like. It's you don't need a ton explained. You're just like, here's this weird lady. She's gonna put your hand in a box and be like <laughs> super intense. Like yeah. you're like, okay, wow, okay, that's a lot. It, yeah, and she's constantly reading minds. Like that's, <laughs> that's some shit. So moving on to your second point, which I think is also another super strong one, has to deal with the production design of. Yeah, the production design is amazing. It's like like it, how it was mentioned in that uh, review that you read, it's just opulent in a way that I feel like royalty, <laughs> even space royalty, should be portrayed. Right. Not just the royalty, even like the the creature design, that giant fucking slug brain thing. Yeah, that's the it's the navigator, like one of the grand navigators or something. But it like, looks like a slug brain, and it's. Not, you know, again, it's like pre-CGI, so it's just this creature that looks so good and so yeah. tactile. <laughs> totally. And it's in this giant, like, amazing vat that They have to, like, looks... wheel in and, like, scrub the floors as they're leaving. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and he's got a posse of these these uh, bald dudes with, like, uh, <laughs> microphones. Like, it's, it's amazing. Like, this, it's, everything looks so cool. And even doing desert landscapes in this, like, we it's beautiful we we were treated to like these gorgeous gorgeous shots of nothing and then from that nothing we get what i think is still the greatest sandworm ever like it's just it's super super gorgeous when it appears especially if there's not an actor in the screen at the same time <laughs> right when you're not having you know, to do the yeah, chroma, yeah. <laughs> chroma key technology has come a long way. <laughs> yeah, production design's uh, great. The scythe, the special effects, we'll leave those on the side. For- yeah, yeah, I, I, that's not one of my um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. points of defense. <laughs> <laughs> but so, okay, I was watching today. I, w- I decided to watch the extended cut of this, which is not an uh, not official. Like David Lynch obviously said, "Hell no, I'm not right. going to." I'm not going to do this and also take my name off of it. So it's one of those rare Alan Smithy Smithy joints, which is such a baller thing to me. It's like, yeah, I made all this stuff and I don't like how you put it out. So Alan Smithy, that's, that's pretty baller. Uh, But I watched it. It's terrible. It's like, it's very long. It's, it's very (laughs) difficult to watch. It has none of the nuance or like kind of flair that, that the David Lynch one has, but it's, (laughs) I just wanted to see more. I just wanted to see like, and I wanted to see, what the what the parts equal without right uh, the ingredients that were like filter. left on the table exactly like making the stew yeah and turns out David was right um, so <laughs> it's but, but watching it watching it and this is something I've noticed before the the world created 
through production design, through costume design, through including casting and uh, the actors giving their fucking all, it feels like a lived-in, true, existing world to me. Like I was saying, the, like the royalty live in opulent places. Um, they're, the military inhabit kind of sparse uh, utilitarian spaces. The the outliers have very little. The the evil have even more than the than the you know potentially good. Right. It's it's such it's so rich. It's very very rich to me. And and even the scene, the spice mining scene, which I feel like was more exciting in the new Dune. It was definitely um, it was definitely more exciting in the new Dune. But, uh, <laughs> there is yeah, but the, the action is. I mean, action is a problem in all Dune movies because again, the book is ninety percent lore. So it's just yes. like there's not a lot of action, and it's sci-fi ish, <laughs> quote in quotes sci-fi. So we yeah. kind of want more action. But yeah, uh, you were talking about. I did. I did. Yeah, <laughs> but that's it's the the way that it plays out in the in the eighty four Dune feels. I I feel like there's more stakes. I uh, we we may get into this later, but like one of my complaints about the the new Dune is that it feels like it exists in an uninhabited space that it's that it's all sets and that it's all the cities that they that they inhabit don't have people in them and th- yeah it's well we may talk about that more but the david lynch dune like everything everything has an inhabited space and the people that inhabit those spaces all have things to do and we watch we watch them do these things it's mm-hmm. it's interesting it's kind of done in an old school fashion like it is basically like old submarine movie when the when the spice mine is attacked by sandworm but it's still, it's happening. Like, I, I do believe it's happening in this fantastical universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for context, this did win the Saturn Award for Best Costume. So there was some award recognition at the time for how good the costumes and stuff are. Good. The, as you mentioned, the like, it starts in this grand emperor's hall that's just so, mm-hmm. like gorgeous and you know opulent in all the right like sci-fi ways the whole movie has it feels very like flash gordon-y in its style where it does feel like that kind of like you know throwback to the again sort of like the campy but like they're not trying for the campiness of it they're trying to do like this is the adult version of like what a flash gordon thing would be Instead yeah. of aiming it at the kids. I saw one quote where the producer, one of the producers was like, we're trying to make Star Wars, but for adults. And you kind of get that with some of the set designs and things like that. And you're talking about just kind of the variations, you know, like the you have the House Arrakis, but then you have like House Harkonnen and like the Baron's getting like some procedure done where they're like yes. sticking needles into his face. And it's in like a big green room that looks like something out of like the Adam West Batman almost. It's like so colorful (laughs) and there's like this weird, like he's pulling things out of people and like maybe having sex with them. And like, there's all this like weirdness going on that feels like very David Lynch vibe. Like there's even at one point where this is not in the book or not anything where it's just like he captures the Baron captures Tolfer and is like brings over this cat in like this neon harness that's like and there's a mouse like 
in a sling next to it. And it's like, you must milk this cat to like stay alive. <laughs> and it's just so weird in like a fun, like sort of doesn't make sense. It might not add anything. And it's just like, this scene could have been cut, but if David Lynch wants a cat milking scene, I guess David Lynch is going to have a cat milking scene in his <laughs> movie. Well, and thank God, because like how, how few cat milking scenes we have to sit through. It's I, I'm, I'm appalled, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's, it's, it's part of his, you know, that's his game. You know, he, he makes horrible things happen in beautiful places. And mm-hmm. like, you know, you notice a mess on a clean surface. So it's like really, it's really nice to see someone having their boils lanced in like a, in like an opulent room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, having these elements like a cat milking scene immediately make the viewer uneasy. Like it's, it's just a, it's a natural response. It's a, it, I don't want to say it's easy because it's absolutely not, but it is obvious. And also the, the way they make the Harkonnens kind of gay. It's which, which yep. you know, we can, I can get into that, but I don't want to. Uh, it's, <laughs> That's fair. Because I, I get it. Like, it, it makes the audience, especially in 1984, it makes an audience uncomfortable. Right. Uh, it makes a villain more villainous, like in 1984. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, use your tools when you use them. Mm-hmm. And I will say uh, one more note on, like, just the look and the production design, that the eyebrow game in this movie oh. is <laughs> off the charts. <laughs> Between Pitter and Thulfir, they both yeah. just have just like luscious locks of like creatures living on their eyes. It's yeah. insane. Again, David Lynch makes these motherfuckers look ridiculous, like completely buffoonish clownery. And they don't let it show at all. They're just like, nope, this is what I look like. This is what we look like now. We are very serious advisor <laughs> characters. We must be very serious and plotting but totally. we have like small woodland creatures on our eyebrows exactly <laughs> yeah man those eyebrows wow <laughs> wow 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 yeah so your third point of defense i think goes right into your musical wheelhouse so i will just <laughs> uh clear the floor for you on this one <laughs> all right so i do think toto did a great job i think toto was great interesting choice <laughs> Again, I kind of wonder, like, who decided that? <laughs> it seemed like just, like, kind of a thing where a producer was just like, who's someone who we could throw a big bag of money at and get it? It's well, just that's, like, yeah, Toto. Who, who has a number one song yeah. last year? Like, Because this, was, was, this would be before they worked on th- Thriller, right? Yeah. Yeah. But there was still, like, a huge rock band. Yeah. But my what I find so fascinating is the prophecy theme by Eno. Eno, of course, Brian Eno, uh, brother Ryan, Roger Eno, and Daniel Lanois write this fucking ambient, beautiful piece <laughs> that is so great and actually transportative. And I wish, of course, they would have done the entire score. Yeah, it would have been it would have been something completely different. And I have to I have to think originally score was by Eno and then producers were like, Nope, uh, no one's going to go to see this movie. Rick Wakeman is busy. Let's get Toto. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very sprawling and mesmerizing theme. There's literally a YouTube clip that you can find called 
three hours of the prophecy theme from Dune yes. in 1984 soundtrack, relaxing sleep sound. And it has <laughs> oh, it has almost one million views of this yeah. like three hour block of just the prophecy theme, which is like 13 minutes or so, just like yeah. looped over and over and over. And it's just great. Like it's fantastic. Anytime you're able to get like the right people to do the right job, it's it's impressive. And this is one of those situations where the right people did the right job. Uh, you know, much like the cast, much like the production designer, like everyone was doing their job on this movie. Everyone was doing everything they were supposed to be doing. Right. And it it's not from lack of parts that this movie might not come together for people. It's that Again, it's just like such a feat trying to cram this much into this time and doing it with the like special effects of the Mm -hmm. time. And there's just like so many hurdles that they had to clear and they cleared so many of them. And then they might have caught their toe on a couple of them face planted a couple times. And you when you see somebody run a race and they clear every hurdle and if they face plant on the last one, you don't you aren't like you don't remember them like killing all the hurdles before. Correct. Yeah. It's like, it's, if you didn't ace it, then you just failed. Like there's, 
And I have a feeling that's how David Lynch feels about this movie in general. Like, I feel like he thinks I didn't ace it. And it's a, so therefore it's a failure, Mm -hmm. which, you know, whatever, as an artist, I get it. Uh, But I also am like, well, damn, like you really did something though. (laughs) You did something pretty impressive. And I can't, I can't believe that he didn't learn something from this that he carried on into his career. All right. So moving on to your fourth point, which is that this film is sort of unconcerned with realism. And that's a good thing. I do think that's a good thing. I think when you're dealing with sci-fi and fantasy, you have the, and this is of course a personal opinion. When you're, when you're dealing with material that is inherently unrealistic, it's good to not, to not be tethered to realism. It's how people make giant swings, even if they're giant swings and misses, is uh, just completely going with the fantastical nature of the material. And this movie, like, of course, there's no, they don't, (laughs) this is maybe one of the problems with the movie. They don't explain anything. And when they do, Uh it doesn't make any sense. I think it's a plus. Uh, It's a plus. (laughs) It's, It's creating a world that we can't comprehend. And that to me is fantastical. And that to me is fun to watch and fun to kind of exist in for two hours. Right. If you take it from that way, it does keep you off guard and makes you like stay engaged in a way of like trying to follow it somewhat. Like the fact that there's less information, you're kind of more on your toes than like if they had explained it a little more succinctly. But it, it, it is like when you have all the book information in your head. You're like, I don't know how anyone would like follow this. <laughs> I don't know if this is a coherent movie, but again, for what you're taking, it can kind of be like that, Eno theme where it's just sort of sprawling and you just kind of let it wash over you. And just because it doesn't necessarily everything click together in perfect little like Lego snaps doesn't mean that yeah. you discard at all but even like like even regardless of of saying like regardless of being able to understand the plot or the story or the lore just the the way the characters behave the uh, the things that happen on screen have zero concern for physics um reality re- like any sort of reality as we know it Right. And I think that's important. I think it's a really cool thing to completely throw out realism. And I'm saying this as like a fan of like my favorite movies are like 70s American 70s dramas, like things, <laughs> things that were just like this actually happened and this is actually happening. Yeah, in gritty and real. And yeah. And like I like I like the gritty superhero shit. Like I like I like the Nolan Batmans and I like, you know, I like I like things that. I like taking fantastical things and grounding them in, in, in what we consider realism. But that said, if I'm going to watch fantasy, I want that shit fantastic. I don't want any, like, I don't want to think maybe that could happen to me. Right. <laughs> like I, I really just want to see things that, that can't happen or would never happen. It's, it's, it keeps you on your toes. It's, it's a, it's way more fun to be like, I have no idea what's about to happen than, oh, I called it five minutes ago. Yeah. I mean, and there is some stuff in here that are just like little absurdist moments that are just like, what is happening? Like there's 
Patrick Stewart's Gurney Halleck, when he goes out in a battle, for some reason picks up the little dog that they have and is like in running into battle with like his laser gun and also like holding his a dog in the other hand yes. for some reason. And it's just like because oh, he loves that dog. He loves yes, that dog, I guess. But like, I feel like that's more dangerous for the dog being like attached to the chest of somebody who. Who's actively being shot at. (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, for for me, my favorite favorite section of the film is the end. It's like the last 20, 30 minutes when shit, when when it's obvious that it's like, we have to like... (laughs) We ran out of time. (laughs) Yeah, we have like 3,000 pages to get into, (laughs) to get into like 30 minutes. That's my favorite bit. It's just this action rapid comes at you fast and furious action and then like it's it's almost like we're supposed to like oh you you know what happened like we're just we're just giving <laughs> you the highlights waving, yeah. notes yeah like wrap it up so interesting yeah i did read that lynch originally wanted it to be a three-hour movie and the studio was like no it's got to be two hours so i think that was part of the artistic frustration but it is kind of crazy like so it it's tough to properly adapt in like a two hour movie. And they just like rush through so many things at the end. Like they don't get to Arrakis till the 40 minute mark of this movie, which is about one fourth of the film, which is like the new one is longer and half the book. And they still get to Arrakis much faster than that. Mm -hmm. And like the point where the new movie ends, which is again, 20 minutes longer than this, which gets, which isn't a part two, like it's an hour 30 into the movie is, so there's only like 30 minutes left when you're basically like, and here's going to be the second Dune film. So like basically like, and that's what you're, that's what you're talking about. It's basically like the second Dune film takes up like that episode of like a sitcom time. Yeah. So just bam, 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 hitting you with everything, which Again, it picks up. It's like it's suddenly like somebody just like moving the train like lever to like faster, like in the cartoons where they just like shovel yeah. in more coal, and then it's just like all of a sudden it's billowing super fast. It's just like no, we're on the we're on the track. We're getting to the end point here. Yeah, come I, along I for wish, the ride. I honestly wish more of the movie was like that. I wish that the movie was kind of staggered in that fashion, where it was, you know, a long, pensive scene uh like the hand in the box scene i think is it's required for that scene to be long and tense right whereas like a lot of the other stuff just just move it along like just <laughs> let's just like do flash 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 the way that uh you know like all that jazz is edited or <laughs> or something more recent like the way the way the social network is edited or right. the way that like you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I just, I, it would be, it would be interesting to me <laughs> if it was just flash, flash, flash. Here's the important shit, flash, flash, flash. But of course, a lot of what needs to be shown is sandworms. <laughs> and that but takes sandworms time. Sandworms are great. I guess I, I did, I didn't follow up, but I should say when we were talking about production design, the sandworms are great in this movie. They're I just fantastic. want to, I want I want to make sure that I am enforcing your sandworms are good point. <laughs> good. <laughs> Yes, sandworms are good. Spice is good. Spice is good. <laughs> Just don't do too much. Yeah, I mean, or, or you know, I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to addict shame. Right. No. Um, no. No. We're not. We're not spice shaming anybody. But. Uh, yeah. 
but Don't also fold, just you know, like think full time it. on your own time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then your your fifth point is one that I I just love the simplicity of it. So I, I'll just leave it to you. Fifth point and the only one that I think is unassailable. I like it. <laughs> there we go. I like it. It's my it's it's a fun movie to watch. I like watching it. I enjoy it. Nothing anyone can say can take that from me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I have I have my issues with this movie, but I I kind of just like the again the directness of just it's a movie that you like and you have your re- reasons and you understand the like shortcomings and you just it doesn't like I appreciate being able to like keep everything in balance and be like, this is still just something I love to throw on and chill out with the desert folk for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I I think there was, there was definitely a time in my life where I would have given, I would have given my opinions a lot more power over me (laughs) and, uh, and, you know, probably given you a much better podcast of me, like arguing points of, of uh, you know, what were, what were very, very important moments of this film and how they are, they're overlooked or underappreciated, blah, blah, blah. But really it's just a good movie. It's a fun movie to me. Like it's something that putting it on, I get, I get to spend two hours, 17 minutes in a world that I have nothing to do with. And it's such a treat, such a treat. I like it. All right. So, I think that covered the five points. So we'll move on to the junk drawer, which is just kind of the assorted thoughts. I'll throw out some, and then we can talk a little bit here about the newer Dune and some of our thoughts on that in comparison. Mm -hmm. I would say the things that like, other than again, it being so hard to follow without the book and you know, you can neither here or there with that. The things that kind of like trip me up in this one are there is that lack of, like great action but again that's dune Mm -hmm. there isn't the battle where paul has like the has to prove himself to the fremen they kind of just like accept him and are like cool you're like our leader now which has a little bit less build-up but again it's kind of that like speed train to the end yeah yeah the fremen are also like <laughs> the fr- the fremen are awfully just like chill. Like, yeah, they're a lot chiller than they are in like the book or in the newer Villeneuve movie. It they yeah. are pretty much like, oh yeah, cool. Like, can you teach us how to do stuff? Like, that'd be cool, yeah. and then we'll like follow just, you because we think you're a prophet. I always took that as kind of a as showing us that they know what's going on. They're not they're not really concerned. Like they're they're believers in this prophecy, and they. They see it. They're they they can see it through their blue eyes. Yep. And it's just it's just fine. I never read the book. So I've never had criticism. I've never had any any of the like lore committed to memory. I don't have any understanding of it still really. <laughs> I mean, I I know right. what's happening in the movies. I know what I I get it. Right. But uh, I don't have any deep understanding of anything that's going on in these. And I don't care to yeah um, that's fine you don't have to you can just yeah. enjoy it for what it is but like you were you were also you were mentioning how it's like there, it's not non-stop action um, there's not much action period there's a little bit of suspense yes which i like uh but not a lot of action star wars was an action movie um that that is right. legit an action film set in a sci-fi fantasy landscape 
this is not an action film. Like this is a this is a a thriller. Like it's it's almost like a spy movie. Yeah, a little bit. I can see that. There's a whole thing with a tooth. Like which <laughs> I love the fucking poison tooth so much. One because when they when when dude <laughs> gives it to to daddy, daddy's like kind of dazed, passed out from whatever poison. Yeah. And uh dude just yanks his tooth out yeah. <laughs> and puts another tooth in. That's so horrifying. It's so <laughs> it gross. Really is. It's so gross. And the way that it's shown is actually kind of horrifying and gross in this very understated way that makes it even more horrifying and gross to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love that. And then I, I of course, love the uh, the <laughs> internal voice, the internal voice going, the tooth. Uh, just <laughs> that kind of shit, which I found appalling as a child. I now find totally just rapturous. And you're speaking of it to the like Star Wars action of it. Um, the one thing is the final battle between Paul and Fade Rothra mm-hmm. against Sting is Sting. <laughs> it's it's almost comical in like how undramatic it like it's <laughs> like no it reminded me of because you mentioned the Star Wars, it reminds me of like the first like Darth Vader Obi Wan battle in a new hope where they're just kind of like tapping their lightsabers back and forth and taking some steps. Like there's like clearly not like stunt people involved in this. (laughs) It's just like kind of slow, like slashes. There's no like backflips or like cool tricks. It's just like, we're kind of just having like a low key knife fight. fight. It's just a fight. Like there's, (laughs) we've been in a million of them. (laughs) Yeah. So, so there's that. Another thing that I, I know you mentioned how you kind of like the spectacle of some of it, the cinematography in the 84 version sometimes doesn't get me because it's often you could tell like there's so many like tighter shots of like movement and action. There's not a ton of like just the huge scope of things, like mm-hmm. especially when they're out in the desert and they're also out in the desert, like not that often, not in their ships. So it's yeah. just like you don't really get a sense of that like desert planet spectacle except for like when you're floating over in the ships. Well, and 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 when the sand when the sandworms emerge. Like that's I feel like oh, yeah. that really that really gives it gives it what it needs for me. That's fair. Uh but yeah, there you're right though. When the when the actors are on screen, it is very like I mean, we're dealing with sets a lot yeah. of the times. Well, it was shot so in it was shot down in Mexico mostly. Um Yeah. And it was, yeah, it's just like, again, it's maybe not a movie that should have been tried to be made in 1984, but Mm -hmm. they did. And it's interesting, even if you don't like it, I feel like. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's so cool to me. Like I, I, I'm not crazy about like people remaking the same movies over and over and over again, but it is, it is neat when something I don't know. Seeing seeing the translation, I guess it's I guess it works mainly with text uh, when you're when you're making a book again, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to making a movie again. That's an interesting way to see like the passage of time and and the advancements of technology and right is just through <laughs> translating a book to screen. Yeah, and a few comparisons between the newer one and this 84 version and then we can kind of talk about a little bit about the newer one 
So in the newer version, at least through part one, there is no Fade Rafa, which is kind of a weird choice. And maybe mm-hmm. they're going to fix that in the part two. But it's just like the person that Paul has the ultimate duel with is non-existent in the newer version, which is... I have a feeling that's that's coming. I, I feel I like just... it's probably coming, but it's just strange because it's just like that's a character who's all throughout like the book and in this movie, all throughout the movie. But maybe it was just Villeneuve of like keeping it from the fans so that it could be revealed or maybe they like couldn't find somebody. I don't know. So here's one of the things that I, that I found uh, that left me wanting in the new one mm-hmm. was not a lot of time on Giddy prime. Like I, I thought that the, the moments that they spent on Giddy prime, I was just like, that's so fucking cool. Right. And I want to see more, like I want to see more weird torture fields and I want to see like more more of this shit this like crazy world that the Harkonnens inhabit right so I have a feeling that the next movie might we might get a little more a little more of the villain the grand villain yeah Uh, because in this one it was more of a like it's the Jesus story like it's still just like here let's follow Jesus and see how Jesus becomes Jesus and now I want to see like let's see the bad guy. Let's see where the bad guy comes from. Let's see where the bad, how the bad guy is going to fight this Mm. Jesus. Yeah, I get that very much. It's a little bit, I keep harboring back to star Wars, but it's a little bit of the star Wars problem where I'm just like, I want to see other things. Get me the fuck off Tatooine. (laughs) I don't need another. I don't need all my shows and movies to be set here we get it it's a very important distant planet but like show me more of like the underbelly of coruscant even show me planets we haven't been to it's just like everybody loves hoth and we spend like this much time on hoth and it's just like the same thing with this it's just like if we spent in the newer version we spend so much time on arrakis which is great because you kind of get that sweeping sense of it a little bit more than you do in the 84 version but again you like all the scenes of off world are just so brief that you're like, don't get a sense of like the scope of the galactic conflict almost. Yeah. And like why it's such a big deal. It's just like whispered and rumored about like, ah, there's the emperor wants to do this, you know? So, yeah. Uh, But I, I don't know how much of that is just us like saying, I want this. Yeah. (laughs) We're all a bit of like, you know, Fan, we're all a bit of you know fan servicey, like uh, doing our own fan fiction for any like of these big sci-fi properties. Like, totally, why didn't yeah. you do this? And you know, most of the kit times, you're like, okay, we're being a little ridiculous. And then there's like the most recent Star Wars movie where it's like, no, all our ideas are better than this actual movie is, which is so funny because like that going to see Rise of Skywalker, like we went and saw it and. We had already heard all the mess and, you know, we're ready. We didn't care. We're going to see it regardless. So it's just like, whatever. And I remember the first 15 minutes of that movie, I kept thinking, this is awesome. Like they're showing all these new places and these new landscapes and it's cool looking and kind of pretty and I'm into this. And then, of course, it just spirals downward. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it, it... I, I guess, is that why we like Empire so much? Like why so many people are so into Empire? Because it really does, like the do scope think, of yeah, it is I do think massive. part of it is, it, the scope is, instead of being on just the stupid desert planet again, or 
you know what you start on a nice planet you go to like a swampy forest planet and you go to a city in the clouds fucking city and you also get you also a floating city and you also get all the time just like going through asteroid fields and you know it's just there's a diversity of place in that movie that like really a lot of this fantasy galactic science fiction whatever you want to call it should do more of but oftentimes they get tethered to like one place and that's that's that i mean even Mm -hmm. like you know, part of the like the man, the first season of The Mandalorian, it's just like challenge of the week and not everything connected, but they were like going to a new place every week. Yeah, so. it was it was just Xena. Like it was just <laughs> that show was just Xena. Uh, and I and I do like it because it's Xena. <laughs> and I, I'm a fan of the I like the Star Wars design aesthetic. So like every time I see something set in that design world, I'm I'm already you're already halfway there for me. Right. Like I'm already just going to like it. Unless you piss me off. And The Mandalorian, I, I, I don't know. It didn't piss me off. I, I just found it kind of, you know, like a, you know, it's like smelling your own farts. It's just like, you know, like it's totally not unpleasant to me. <laughs> like it's, it's doing what it does. A couple other comparisons with the newer movie and the older one. I do like how when this, the newer version came out, everybody was like, like Zendaya is barely in this movie at all where it's like, well, yes, it gets to the point basically where he meets her. Cause you split into two movies, but also looking back, like Zendaya might be in the newer Dune more than Sean Young Sean is Young. In, the, in the 84 version, despite it being the full story, which includes like the whole time they fall in love. Like their love is basically like they meet and they might talk like once. And then it's just like them kissing in like, a flash forward sequence. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, Oh, okay. Um, so if Zendaya got the short shift, Sean Young really got the short shift, which was kind of a running theme throughout Sean Young's career. Yeah. Sean Young was done dirty for a long, long time. Uh, <laughs> my bandmate, Rachel is a frequent, like <laughs> she likes to call out Sean Young's work and how she's super unappreciated. I have my own feelings about Sean Young, but I also agree that she is, she's frequently just been done dirty. Right. Right. I don't think there's a lot of arguing with that. Yeah. The other characterization that I think really stood out between the newer version and the older one is how much uh, Duncan Idaho is also given the short shrift in the 84 version. He's basically just like in and out. And meanwhile, Mm -hmm. like the newer version, basically Jason Momoa gets to just be, a super cool badass. Yeah. And just like his, his name's Duncan Idaho, man. Like <laughs> it's such a, again, like, I'm Frank Herbert, man, yeah. dude, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Nothing's cooler than Idaho. Oh, yeah, well, except for maybe Jessica. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is that in comparison, you know, there's a lot of the, another argument against the newer dude. Again, it's just like, funny a lot of the things that the people complained about with the newer dude it's just like have you seen like the old one or are you familiar with the book where it's just like people complaining about how it's like a white savior complex movie it's just like yeah that's kind of how it was written i don't know but also like in comparison to 84's dune the newer dune is much less lily white 
because this is all white folks in the true, <laughs> true. But can we? And and of course, anyone can uh, can argue anything about this. But uh, the new Dune, in my opinion, suffers more from a white savior complex because it is not Lily White. That's fair. Uh, I think the, that's a the fair. 19, the 1984 Dune is super. There is only white people in that movie. Right. So only white people in that movie. White people saving desert white people. Yeah. So the problem with the 84 Dune is the studio system in America and, <laughs> and, and just straight up racism and, and not allowing people of color to occupy space in blockbuster films. Correct. In, in the new one, it's a white savior story, which is not the fault of the movie. It is the fault of Frank Herbert. But I am, I am just going to say, like, as far as optics go, it is uh, more so white savior I think with this, this skinny white boy saving a bunch of uh, brown skinned sand people. That is, I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. Was there anything else you want to hit on on the new movie or the old movie that we didn't touch on in our points? So the only, like, the main thing that I compare when I think of the, the new movie versus the old one the new Dune, to me, which I loved, is monochromatic. It's it's either tan or gray. Yeah. At all times. Or black when it's harkened. I feel like. Correct. Lots, lots of, <laughs> lots of yeah. darkness. Yes. As I said earlier, every space they inhabit doesn't feel like it's lived in, doesn't feel like it actually has any sort of life outside of the people and like the, outside of the frame of the film it all seems very stagey and i think that this is something this is partially denny villeneuve's style right um, because blade runner 2049 was the same it everyone walks into a set walks out of a set there is no sound of neighbors there's no there's no like there's very few scenes of non-speaking people doing anything any work being done any you know food being prepared you know there's there's like the one scene in Blade Runner that I can think of where that kind of exists Uh, but for the most part it's two people in a room or a mansion or or a city block all to themselves Mm -hmm. and that's that's the same with this dune it's gray and tan and we are dealing with a, a world that is completely uninhabited. And I wonder if the new one, because they'll be spending more time with the Fremen, will feel more lived in because it's actually, it's like where the people live. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a good chance that like the Fremen underground cities are a lot more lively than, cause yeah, when you go to the Arrakis home base, it feels like they kind of are just living in a castle and there's not a city around it. Yeah. And it is, and it's the, the new one also is like, it, it adheres to this kind of modern brutalist design aesthetic that I do love. Uh, so it is neat to see. I think, I think that movie is gorgeous and I, I, I love it, but with Lynch's Dune, like I said, like they modeled so many of the, the Royal spaces that were inhabited after the Alhambra. And like, it it's, opulent and beautiful and full of texture and full of these things that that you know for centuries in our history 
denote royalty mm-hmm. and and power not blank walls and large empty spaces but act, like except for nazi germany uh, <laughs> so and i guess that is that is obviously like the design choice to to make that parallel but i i enjoy seeing the opulence like the kind of classic opulence of of power depicted on screen in David Lynch's version, mm-hmm. as opposed to the the like brutalist, stark, you know, large space, empty space world of uh, Villeneuve's Dune. Right. I I think like even when you're talking about like when Baron Harkonnen is getting medical treatments between the two movies, where it's just like in the new one, it's like this sleek black room where there's like vats of oil or whatever that he's coming out of and there's like stoic there might be another person or two in the room with gary oldman and dave batista who are just like kind of standing still and like made to like not move like they're almost statues while in like lynch's dune it's like this crazy like again pseudo like batman thing where like guys in like devo glasses are like looking on yeah. while stuff is happening and like yeah or ladling ladling goo on their their master like right they're, like they're, they're or like doing, you know it's working. like they're Everyone overhearing like Phaedrotha like do some like barbs or whatever and say yeah. house atreides is trash or whatever it's just like there's more creatures in the space and you know again i think that's one of the things we keep going back, but it's one of those things that like Star Wars gets to where it's just like, we're on a desert planet, but here's this cantina full of all these like creatures that live yeah. in the city where it's <laughs> yeah. just like, there's no, there's nothing approaching that in the newer Dune. And at least there's no. kind of some inklings of that in Lynch's, even if you're not feeling like it's populated with a diverse crew of things. Cause it's pretty much just all white people, but at least there's a little bit more almost like human chatter going on. Yeah, that's there's a din. There's a there's a din that that exists. I, and again, this is these these two things, neither of them is better. Uh, they're they're two different aesthetics. Like one one is a Rembrandt and one is an Audnerdrum. Like it's 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 the different it's like I like things to constantly be in motion or I like things to be still and staged. Mm -hmm. And I think both, both of those things are beautiful and can be done extremely well. And I think in both of these films, they are done extremely well from both ends of the spectrum. Awesome. Well, I think that covered most of what we wanted to get to. Is there anything else? I can't, I think I've talked more about Dune (laughs) uh, than I have in my entire life. (laughs) <laughs> awesome. Well, before we get out of here, is there anything you would like to plug? Any of your musical projects or things you think people should be watching or anything? Sure. I think that people should be watching the uh, the 80s television show Heart to Heart, and then they should listen to my podcast. <laughs> there we go. It was, it was Murder. Uh, me and Joe and our friend Ellen have a podcast called It Was Murder, and we talk about every episode of the show Heart to heart. How, uh, how which, many are you through so far? We just had our hundredth episode, so we're we're in the last season. We're in the last season of Heart to Heart, almost halfway through the last season. But then there are eight movies. Ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I so was not aware there were that many Heart to Heart movies. 
I I wasn't either until we started this podcast. But we're gonna we're gonna do it all, and I think we have like sixty more episodes until it's over. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, or maybe thirty. I think thirty more episodes, and then we're done, and we'll figure out something else to do. Is heart to heart streaming anywhere? It's not not in the United States, uh, but you can actually. I think seasons three and four are streaming on Tubi. And you can just Google the episode titles. Yeah, and they, they're pretty easy to find right now. But we are the only heart-to-heart podcast in existence right now. N- number one in the world. We are number one. We, we open every episode with this the is world's the number one heart-to-heart podcast <laughs> in the world. Also, Pink Lotion, my band Pink Lotion. We have a show in LA on March 19th at The Smell with Fiona Moonchild and Stress, which is going to be really, really fun. And then I think we're playing Hoodstock in Seattle this year. Okay. Uh, so more info on that when that gets confirmed. Two years ago, we released it. We released Lusters, our EP Lusters. Uh, we have a new. We have a new one that's almost done. And what, as soon as it's done, it's just going up. So. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So keep your uh, yeah, keep, keep your ears peeled for that. Yeah, keep go to our Bandcamp and follow us, which is just pinklotion.bandcamp.com. Mm-hmm. And I will also say Eric's solo music is great. You can check out his albums too on Bandcamp. I'm a I'm a fan of uh, Touch Screens, which is a album about pornography, and it yes. is it rocks. <laughs> it rocks. Thank you. Thanks so much. So awesome. Well, again, thank you for taking the time to come here and muse about Dune with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm ready to just take another journey into the sand, sandy deserts and <laughs> just have a great time. So if you haven't experienced it and you want to fill that David Lynch hole in your heart, go for <laughs> it. No going in. You might not understand where it's going, but... If you like Eric, you can just let it wash over you and enjoy yeah. it for what it is. And remember, even if everyone else mocks it, love the stuff you love. <laughs>